Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors! Welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me, as usual, is Cameron. Michael. Hmm? I'm breathing toxic air. <laughs> Dang! I see all these people running around, not breathing toxic air, and I just... I'm breathing it. Mm-hmm. Because they've got some sort of rebreathing apparatus, or you're just in some sort of toxic air chamber. I just love it. Oh, oh, I see. It's well, invigorating to me. Let people uh, enjoy things. That's my motto. Yeah, and including the toxic air, because uh, <laughs> this episode we're talking about The Running Man. Yeah. A Stephen King, well, a Richard Bachman book, and, and you'll inform us about this in mere moments, but a Richard Bachman book in which there is a substantial plot line. The B plot, one could say, mm-hmm. about air pollution. Yes. <laughs> so this novel was originally written, uh, accounts kind of vary apparently, but originally written sometime in 1971 or 1972. And in many, many ways you can tell. Uh, it was not published until 1982, again, as part of uh, King's kind of, uh, like, the basically the strategy with the Bachman books, which was to take things he had already written but couldn't get published and then publish them. Uh, and so this is uh, written before or at about the same time that he is finishing his first draft of Carrie as well, if you want to know kind of other things that are going on. Um, and uh, do you have any sort of thoughts or observations as we begin with that, Cameron? No, that it's really weird. That That's really weird <laughs> I, I, that <laughs> statement. That's an odd thing to be true. I don't really know what to do with that information. You know, what we have learned, it feels like, in uh, in these episodes of the Bachman books is that Stephen King wrote a lot of full novels mm-hmm. around when he wrote Carrie. And it basically seems like, kind of in retrospect, Carrie is just the only one anyone wanted to read. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's very, very strange. And um, as usual, I'm indebted for a lot of this information to Bev Vincent, who uh, writes historical essays about uh, Stephen King novels on StephenKingRevisited.com. So if you want to follow up or like get an expanded version of some of this, you can check that out. Uh, But it does seem like prior to having success, King was somehow just like bamfing out novels left and right, which is sort of incredible. Yeah, it, it's really incredible. And it's even more incredible, too, when you think about the, you know, the context we talked about all the way back with, um, what, Rage was the first Bachman book, right? Uh, yes. Um, and, and we talked about there, right, the kind of the Bachman experiment, quote unquote, you know, that Stephen King talks about in the Being Richard Bachman essay is, or Being Bachman, whatever it was called, is that, you know, Bachman as a brand, essentially, right, as this kind of fictional author, is an experiment to see 
was it just pure luck or not? You know, was becoming Stephen King as a phenomenon, as a successful author, was it just pure luck? And I have to say, now having read three Bachman books and really the 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 only Bachman books, um, because by the time we get further, I mean, it's already been, by the time this book comes out, it's already been kind of revealed, right? People know that he's Richard Bachman. So this is also very interesting. Uh, and I'll talk about that in, in, in just a little bit, but I'll let you finish your thought. Sure. Um, the only thing I, I was going to say is that I think now having read these and knowing that he wrote all of these either before he wrote Carrie or was working on them during Carrie or wrote them in a, a similar time period, it was pure luck that he was Stephen King, right? <laughs> because because if someone had accepted, you know, if his agent had accepted this book or if his agent had accepted or, or a literary agent, period, had accepted or a publisher had accepted Rage or it had accepted, um, I'm blanking on the, the middle one, uh, Roadwork. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Stephen King, we would not know who Stephen King is because those books would have sold no copies because those books aren't good. The Running Man, I think, you know, just to give a little preview, is the best of these books so far. But I, I don't know that it is like a book that people would have latched onto in the way that culturally they did with Carrie. You can't make a movie out of any of these other, you can't make a movie out of Rage. I yeah. Mean, I mean, technically you could. You can make a movie out of anything, but I don't think it would be a successful film in any kind of way. There's not a lot to grab onto there, right? Mm -hmm. Right. The Long Walk, weirdly enough, feels like it's something that would make a good movie, but we know, and we've heard from Mick Garris on Mick Garris's podcast, that everyone's tried to do it, and no one can do it. Um, you can't really make a movie out of road work, uh, and if you do, it just becomes like a white man revenge fantasy kind of uh, death wishy kind of thing right mm -hmm. um th there's something about the particular mix of elements that's going on in carrie that makes it have its kind of cultural i don't know resonance and uh, i just don't think that's in any of these other books that he was working on around that time or in that that time period um and I'm, we will talk about it as we get through this um this episode but it also has to do with the fact that they're all kind of white man rage books yeah <laughs> and uh, books about angry young white men which um i think in the 1960s 1970s is a weird vibe given what's happening in american politics um and actually kind of in retrospect right despite you know we've talked about several times that stephen king is ostensibly a liberal and in kind of a capital l liberal in a lot of ways um, but the Bachman books are reactionary texts, right? Yeah. And I mean that in a, in a technical sense, right? They are reacting uh, with a conservative kind of vibe to them, um, to the social movements of their time. Um, and I don't think that makes Stephen King like inherently a right-winger, but it is interesting that the novels that are being produced as Bachman books um, I all have a... Uh, privileging of conservative elements and uh, hold on to the fact that those conservative elements are better than whatever movement is happening, partic particularly like the modernization of America. And we're obviously going to talk about that in The Running Man, which is a uh, dystopian book that has some uh, some elements, perhaps, um, that, that we'll talk about. But but uh, you said you were going to say a little bit more about uh, the Bachman myth here before we get into the specifics of the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so this was the last Bachman uh, paperback original. Uh, mm. And I realize I think we've talked about paperback originals a couple of times on this show, but I don't know if we've explained what those are. And I'm not sure if they really uh, are a thing that people would know about today. I'm sure they still make them, but I think... Uh, 
The way to think about a paperback original is almost something more like a Kindle single these days, which is to say, uh, and these are wildly, wildly different, but like paperback originals were books that were being published uh, to be bought uh, in bus stations, in airports, uh, and and I don't mean just like, you know, normal airplane reading, but this is sort of like lower brow stuff, generally speaking, um, like sort of almost like uh, pulp paperbacks. And the reason they're called paperback originals is because they're never published in hardcover. This is uh, mass market fiction in kind of its, you know, truest mid-century form. One little additional piece of information there that we've alluded to on the show, but haven't really talked about explicitly is that, you know, by the end of the 1950s or from the end of the 1950s into the 1980s, there's this thing that happened that was called the paperback revolution, which was a massive explosion in paperback publishing period. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from the mid 1950s into the 1980s, that is the formative moment of what we call American science fiction you know, mm -hmm. as a genre. You know, various people have said this. There's a kind of famous Harlan Ellison quote about it. There's a uh, Samuel Delaney's written about it a few times, but, you know, in the mid-1950s, you could read every science fiction novel that came out in a year. That was humanly possible for a person to do. And by the mid-1960s, you could read maybe 10%, mm -hmm. maybe. Um, and in, in, you know, kind of my subfield, whatever, the thing that I study in science fiction, um, things like the Philip K. Dick Award, which still exists, right, were specifically created in order to reward this type of subgenre of fiction or kind of submarket of fiction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Philip K. Dick Award is for the best, the best paperback-only first novel. I think I, maybe, I might be wrong about the first novel part, but it is specifically for paperback originals, as you're talking about. So the whole marketplace of publishing in that time period is r radically changing. And genre fiction in particular, and this is where kind of, um, this is how Stephen King is possible in the 1970s and 1980s, is that he is able to hit the hardcover market and do extremely well in the mass market paperback, right? The mm -hmm. paperback originals market. Um, and, and so it's kind of this middle state between like pulps and short story magazines in the 1930s, 40s, 50s you know, where you might read five or six Western stories written by different authors. It's kind of a middle in between that and then what we have now with, you use the the, the language of airport fiction, right? Where right. we have 15 authors, you know, give or take at any given moment who are just available in paperback form. Um, and so in this period, it would have been much more diverse. You would have mm -hmm. seen lots and lots of different authors, uh, people writing under pseudonyms. Like um, Stephen King. <laughs> and Stephen King, yeah, yeah, and, or just people trying to diversify, you know, the kind of of uh, genres or whatever they're working on. So, sorry, not to monologue about it, but but yeah, it's uh, the paperback original is absolutely this kind of node in the middle of this network of changing publishing relationships that are happening in this time period. Right, but sorry, go ahead. No, and I mean, it's good that, uh, I like that you brought that up because, uh, preview for the bonus episode where I'll talk about this, the Running Man film gets made, uh, not because this is a Stephen King property, but because the person who wanted to make it into a film, the, the, uh, sort of person who ended up optioning the rights, uh, saw it in an airport and read it. So, wow. right, like read it in an airport and thought this should be a film. So 
So uh, they, see, they see Richard Bachman. Uh, never mind. Sorry. Yep. We'll talk about it in the bonus episode. That bl- blows my mind. So anyway, that's uh, all about the, the this is the last uh, Bachman paperback original then. Right. So thing number one after this, um, uh, the next Bachman novel we have before or like just before, just after the pseudonym officially gets unveiled is thinner. And I think that's around 1985. Uh, and you said that you. You probably read what I had here in the show doc and thought that uh, Stephen King was basically already out about being Bachman, right? No, I just thought, I thought this quote, I'm assuming you're going to read the whole quote. I thought this was maybe from earlier in the timeline. For for whatever reason, I the Bean Bachman um, mm-hmm. essay has got me goofed up as far as like timeline is concerned, but... Um, but yeah, so he's still pretending that Richard Bachman is a real person and that he is not Richard Bachman, even though some people have figured it out. Yeah. And so uh, this is, again, this is a quote from that, that Bev Vincent dug up, uh, and I tried to pull up the interview uh, where where he got it, and unfortunately it was very hard to get, and I couldn't get it in time. Uh, but this is, in this interview, Stephen King is asked whether or not he is Richard Bachman. Uh, and this would have been, uh, I guess, about the time that The Running Man would have been published. And King replies, no, that's not me. I know who Dick Bachman is, though. I've heard the rumor. They have Bachman's books filed under my name at the Bangor Public Library, and there are a lot of people who think I'm Dick Bachman. I went to school with Dickie Bachman, and that isn't his real name. He lives over in New Hampshire, and that boy is crazy laughter that boy is absolutely crazy and sooner or later this will get back to him and he'll come to banger and he'll kill me that's all several times i've gotten his mail and several times he's gotten mine he's at signet because of me and when the editors got shuffled things might have gotten confused maybe that's how it all got screwed up and the rumor started but i am not not richard bachman i so do you think that little not not at the end because that's that's very clever right uh-huh do you think that little not not is is him being like I am not not Richard Bachman and that and the way it gets transcribed is is, is like the double negative because I love that I love that that this is obviously you know Stephen King is not writing this out he's saying this and so I love the idea that there is a double negative that would would play verbally but when you transcribe it it it's a double negative and so. Um, uh, you know, it's him saying, I'm Richard Bachman. <laughs> I'm not, not Richard Bachman. Yeah. It's, um, like this quote is just incredible. And the reason I wanted to look this up is like, this is a long quote. And I kind of wanted to see what the tenor of the whole interview is, uh, because he- here is, you know, King basically kind of, you know, winking and nodding saying like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm Richard Bachman. Um, and, and just sort of the, the most, uh, uh, wild way possible. Right. Like just this is a guy who if I met him at a party, I would think like maybe you don't drive yourself home tonight. That's that's kind of the vibe I'm getting. <laughs> it's a man who is like spinning fanfic about himself. And he's like, oh, what? I don't know. What can I say about Richard Bachman? Oh, he'll murder me. Yeah. <laughs> like that's an endearing fact about Dickie Bachman, a human being who's untraceable and no one knows where he lives except for me. Right. And, and then, of course, this becomes the dark half in 1989. Right. This becomes its yeah. own book. Uh, 
So yeah, uh, that's that's uh, some uh, weird uh, background on the Running Man. Um, one other thing to mention then is that you already said that uh, Paperback Originals was kind of the big science fiction. Uh, uh, I don't know Kickstarter, right? It allowed that genre mm, yeah. to really really grow. Um, and King actually submitted this manuscript to Ace Books, which was a uh, I think Ace is still around, but a big uh, Paperback Original science fiction publisher. Um, specifically when it was under the editorship of uh, Donald Wolheim, who I think is uh, pretty well respected. Uh, and King received a rejection letter that said, uh, you know, from Wolheim, I suppose, that says, we are not interested in science fiction with deals with negative utopias. They do not sell. I don't know if, one, I'm not sure if that's true at that time period, but also uh, it's nevertheless fascinating to think about from our current perspective where I think dystopia is like one of the dominant media modes. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that probably is true for ACE at the time. If this is being submitted in like the mid seventies around Carrie or, you know, somewhere in that time period that, that probably is true. Um, in the sense that I'm thinking about, you know, other kind of dystopian post-apocalyptic work from that time period. And it's like vastly, you know, outnumbered by everything else right you know this is before what what has now been called the new wave really caught on right mm -hmm. and which complexifies you know certainly like the popular imagination of what science fiction is but and and you know people uh, the the way that the science fiction new wave gets talked about kind of retrospectively and the way that it actually was in particularly like who counts as new wave um uh is is really complicated and complex but but the expansion of the field of popular science fiction i would say even in the middle 1970s or early 1970s is much different than uh than we have now but yeah i think you're right absolutely it you know it's flipped and that has a lot to do with the 1980s i mean it has a lot to do with the next 10 years of stephen king books that we're going to be reading because cold war nihilism essentially mm -hmm. right and mutually assured destruction and the reagan years really changed the kind of flavor of what science fiction is prominent and what the what that field looks like you know kind of uh negative utopias is what wolheim is saying here but what we would call probably dystopia and there's some some i guess critical differences there but ones that don't really matter for our purposes um i think we get a lot more comfortable with those um in the late 70s throughout the early 80s because late 70s gives us uh soylent green it gives us planet of the apes right mm -hmm. and those are really big popularizations that kind of carry through the 1980s um so that's all that's all to say uh i i kind of get it i think this is maybe you know this is just me saying this before we talk about the book proper but this could just be a very polite rejection mm -hmm. um because uh the book before i reread it for this show the running man was one of my favorite stephen king novels because mm -hmm. i've only read it like once or i think i've probably read it twice something like that as like a teen or preteen even yeah. Whew. Reading it for the show, mm -hmm. it's it's not a good book. Not particularly. Um, great ideas in it, mm -hmm. I think. I think I think so much of the setup is really cool, and I'm really excited to talk about the bonus ode. You can go to patreon.com slash range touch in order to access the bonus episode right now for five dollars a month if you want to do that, because these go up at the same time and we are going to have a delightful time we haven't recorded it yet but i know for a fact we're gonna have a delightful time with the uh the the film the arnold schwarzenegger film yeah. but 
all of the cool stuff that I like about the Running Man in the novel is just redone in interest, more interesting ways, I think, in the film. Um, mm-hmm. This book structurally is really weird. Narratively, it's got a lot of weird stuff going on. And representationally, for, for lack of a better word, the way that it treats all of its characters, all of its characters, yeah. other than its, its protagonist, uh, is messed up. Uh, it is. It is some. Um, uh, I don't know. It's Steve at, at in the same tenor as you can imagine him, or, or as we've encountered him in something like Rage. I think it has a very nihilistic Steve interior, and representationally, particularly around black characters, is is so much worse mm-hmm. um, than anything of his we've read before. But we will talk about that when we get into the thing. Maybe this is a place where. Uh, for people who don't know what The Running Man is about, where you give us, Michael, a five-sentence summary. That I do. Uh, and I am so very excited to tell you all the story of The Running Man in five sentences. Um <clears throat> In the far future year of 2025, where everything is bad, everyone watches really mean TV. Ben Richards, a guy who needs money for his sick daughter, goes on the meanest TV show, The Running Man, where he has to become a wanted-for-death fugitive across America. Ben becomes the running man and also uncovers a government plot about pollution. Eventually, he outsmarts the TV show, which is also kind of the government, in a weirdly straightforward and obvious way that I felt like should have been accounted for a long time ago. (laughs) And then he crashes a plane into the TV network government's central skyscraper. Yeah. That's it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, good episode. Yeah. Uh, good. Glad we talked about the paperback revolution. I will see everyone in one month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, I mean, yeah, the, the, the obvious thing to, to point out here, as you've already alluded to, is that literally every single Bachman novel is about this, like, rage-filled white man destroying himself. Yeah. Uh, it's like a, a rage-filled white man at different stages of his life. Um, you know, so like we have the older rage-filled white man in, um, Roadwork. We have the youngest rage-filled white man in Rage. We have a uh-huh. slightly older than that rage-filled white man in, uh, The Long Walk. Um, and, uh, and then we have like our, our, I don't know, he's, what, Ben Richards is like 20, 25 or 28 or something. It's yeah no he's like younger than me, uh yeah he's in his late twenties yeah yeah that's why that's and the, you get the feeling it makes a lot of sense that this was uh, written in the early seventies you know when Steve King was in his early twenties of him being like what would an older man be like you know someone who's twenty eight twenty nine <laughs> what, right. what would his opinions about the world be um <sighs> well so so let's start with the uh, the good it's easy to to focus on um. 
the nightmarish parts of these, and obviously we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, the kind of rage-filled uh, white dudes that are that proliferate through these Bachman novels. But um, I think the science fictiony stuff here is really cool, um, as far as like world setup is concerned. You know, something we've talked about a lot uh, in these Stephen King episodes is that Stephen King is pretty good at like generating world for you. And uh, I think that's awesome here. You know, this this book starts out very cleanly. He gives you a setup of the world, which is basically like we're in a near future, or, you know, certainly near future for us, but pseudo near future for Steve writing in the 70s, publishing in the 80s. We're in a near future in which uh, media and the government are the same thing. And there have there has been a revolution of some sort, um, so, so mm-hmm. like a, a political revolution uh, that has created a series of laws in which um, everyone is given a TV, yeah, whether they want it or not. Uh huh. And it's called the free V. <laughs> the free V. Um, really funny that we talked about Roadwork as him doing like a Vonnegut pastiche because mm-hmm. this also feels like a Vonnegut pastiche. <laughs> yeah. The freebie is very Vonnegut. Yeah, the free the freebie and the whole setup, right? This kind uh-huh. of game-based setup of, you know, the world runs on games. You know, mm-hmm. at the end of this, I'm sure at some point, we're going to have to write about Stephen King's game novels. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> he's done that, you know, the long walk, similar kind of vibe to it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I really like, so Ben Richards, basically, his his um, his uh, uh, wife is having to do sex work to, like, make ends meet. Because Ben Richards has too much self-respect to work at the factory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's like a working class man. He is a, he is a Bruce Springsteen protagonist. Well, didn't he, like, get Um, fired or something over, like, he refused to work on an engine that was, like, leaking radiation or something? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, like, stood up for workers' rights, you know? Yeah. I'm not going to be down for that. And um, so he gets fired, and his wife is kind of doing sex work to make ends meet, and he really doesn't like that. And his daughter is, has, um, like, pneumonia, essentially, Mm -hmm. like, kind of chronic pneumonia. And so he decides, you know, I don't have any money. I'm going to go down to uh, the network mm-hmm. and I'm going to volunteer for their games because they're, they have several different game types and they're all dangerous, but all of them allow you to make money and they'll probably kill you as well. Um, they're all kind of blood sport at their core. Uh, one of them involves like being maimed. Um, mm-hmm. One of them that they talk about is like you're on a treadmill that mm-hmm. just goes eternally, and it's only for people who have um, uh, like disabilities of some sort. Mm-hmm. And so it's about this kind of like cruel looking at them as they are, uh, you know, literally dying for dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, so absolutely bleak. And in the movie, which we'll talk about in the bonus episode, this gets transformed almost like Verhoeven style into a little bit of satire. Mm-hmm. Um, not a lot of satire here in this novel. No, it's just kind of like the imagining sort of the most miserable uh, social reality it can. Not played for jokes whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the film, kind of, you know, there's a little bit of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so Ben Richards gets through the process. And I really love, this is also, like I was saying, very vonnegut that he goes through this like medical and mental clearance process Mm -hmm. in the network where like slowly but surely he goes from system to system to system and all these people are evaluating him and talking to him and he's like going into this machine and eventually becomes selected he's one of like a couple people out of the hundreds who 
um, are volunteering who are selected for the running man, which is, as you were saying, a game show, reality TV show, kind of yeah. a, a pre thing where you are being hunted by everyone in the United States. Yeah, they like give you they give you some money and like a, what is it like a 48 hour head start and then there's a team of stalkers that are going to come after you um which is just you know like basically a, a team of trained bounty hunters uh but there's also uh, a cash reward for anyone who sees you to call you in so everyone in the country is uh, sort of implicitly, you know, uh, s- supposed to be against you or like has motivation to, to be against you. Um, and because of the kind of unity of, of media with the state, you um, if anyone helps you, it's illegal. Mm hmm. Uh, well, so and so that's like, you know, the inciting incident, for lack of a better word, of like what makes the book go what sticks out to you in these sections? Because really, this is just, you know, it's extremely plotty. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, after this point in the novel, from, from this point to the end, and even to the point where the chapters are not chapters, they are countdowns. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like counting down to, to zero for the end of the book. And I think it starts with 100 chapters, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and But the whole thing is just like pure plot. It's just like Ben Richards goes from event to event to event to event. And things happen. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know what sticks out to you here. What's interesting. What, what, what do you want to talk about here? Well, uh, I suppose I would want to start with kind of a general observation that I think is kind of characteristic of the novel. It it struck me as very strange and I don't know if you had maybe the same experience, but this novel starts out feeling very, very science fiction-y and the science fiction almost bleeds away in this weird way as like the plot ticks onward as as uh Richards gets further away from his starting point cuz like once he gets to New York that's like the first place he goes right then when they give him his head start uh he goes to New York oh and also the other thing uh is that you have to because the, the quaintness the hysterical quaintness sometimes <laughs> of, of this novel the videos yeah yeah right he uh he has to mail them videos of himself um because it's 1971 or whatever and uh you know there's no internet so he has like a camera that he's lugging around and it's like the smallest camera imaginable at the time and it's like a palm sized camcorder uh and he's got this like box of tapes that he's supposed to fill up and he's supposed to mail back to a day or whatever uh and then uh that gets all edited together into the airing of the show each night so anyway uh, that's going to be sort of important later because obviously if he's mailing these things, then they always know where he is because there's a return address or at least there's a stamp or something. Um, but they insist that that's not the case. Anyhow, uh, he gets to New York and, uh, you know, future New York seems an awful lot like the type of 1970s New York you would see in a movie. And then, again, this being a Stephen King novel at its heart, uh, when he has to run away from New York, instead of uh, what we had in The Long Walk of going from Maine uh, to the south of the of uh, like the country's shoreline, uh, he runs up toward Maine, of course. Uh, and then he, like, finds himself in, like, this weirdly idyllic, like, rural countryside, uh, like, resort community place that seems again just very much like 
normal, uh, like sort of realistically written Maine. And I found that very fascinating because I always, I always feel like King's relationship to science fiction is weird in this way that he almost can't sustain interest in it without it kind of warping back around to something sort of more immediate to him. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that is, we're obviously not spoilers for several years in the future, but that literally is what happens in The Dark Tower. Right. <laughs> Stephen King, you know, spent several novels, like, you know, creating this wild and wacky, fantastical, magical science fiction world, and he warps it back into the real world every chance he can into the kind of... Uh, you know, just, you know, 1970s New York multiple times mm-hmm. and Maine shows up and all that kind of stuff. I, I think that's right. I think that um, for whatever reason, he has to return to settings that feel familiar um, to his imagined reader, which is, I think, himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that familiarity is like, you know, um, a diner and apple pie and like a bus station and, um, a, you know, a mall that's being constructed um, and I think this has a lot to do with, um, we've learned a little bit about this, um, in stuff we've read so far, but we'll learn more, especially when we get to something like on writing that Stephen King often, when he gets stuck in a novel, just goes for long walks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think we actually learned some of this in the stand episode when he was talking about the kind of break in that novel mm-hmm. and when they get to Denver, uh, wait, Denver, uh, uh Boulder. Boulder, Boulder, um, but, you know, the idea that he just, like, took took huge long walks to try to walk through, work through that. And we do we also know that Stephen King will often just observe things in the world and then just write them into his novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's part of it. I think it's like him trying to break through writer's block to hit his 12 pages a day or whatever. And so Maine shows back up because that's how his process works. And he writes at such a clip that that's kind of what he's got. Um, so... Um, yeah, yeah, I think I think that's right. I think he can't. I think his method of writing, in some ways, cannot sustain science fiction in a way that uh, you know someone who is traditionally understood to be a science fiction writer uh, would. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that he is as much of a science fiction writer as someone like Ursula Le Guin, but the the difference being there is that Ursula Le Guin is interested in giving you a bunch of if-then scenarios and then playing them out in a serious way. And Stephen King is interested in writing a, a, a story that has some if-thens in it, but ultimately those don't need to carry the plot anywhere. Plot will do whatever it wants to. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, and so, yeah, it feels weird as a science fiction. I think I think you're right. As, as we get further away from, like, the dystopian corporation, it just becomes the regular everyday world, but everyone has a, a TV that shows the same stuff. Right. Or like a flying car that is sort of <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like there, there are like, that's the other thing about this world that is really fascinating is that, uh, and I wrote this in the show doc is that this book feels kind of suspended between golden age pulp science fiction and sort of new wave science fiction in this way that like, yeah, there, this is a world with flying cars and uh, really super fast computers and kind of this uh, uh, rigorous and efficient and quick, uh, uh, like, weird governmental entertainment corporate structure. Uh, but then also, uh, there, are all, there are these, like, smaller hints, especially back in kind of the the, like, network center that Richards is initially from, which is kind of weirdly implied to be, like in Michigan around Detroit or something, right? Kind of like uh, Midwest or sort of middle America. Um, Mm. 
the uh there it's implied like the 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 wealth divisions right between where richards lives in kind of like a housing development called co-op city um and uh where other people in the city live and i don't remember what they call them but like the people uptown or whatever kind of the wealthier district uh where there's a new form of currency called just like new money that only wealthy people use Yep. Uh, well, actually, everyone can use it, right? But apparently, like, wealthy people have more, like, new money than, like, old money. Uh, yeah, wealthy people get, like, their paycheck in new money. Yes. And so, and, and it counts more because they will only take new money for their things. So it's this kind of, uh, you know, parasitic economy. Right. Uh, right. And, and uh, the parasitic kind of, like, uh, uh, enclosed, removed elite ends up feeling uh, very cyberpunky in its way, right? Like, mm-hmm. you see sort yeah. of, like, that that kind of disjunction of uh, sort of excess uh, and uh, the sort of poverty that other people have to live in. Um, that's all very interesting. And then, as you get further away from that, it's just, here we are back in rural Maine with a boy and his dog. Yeah, yes, which we'll talk about in a bit. But yeah, this comes, I mean, uh, speaking of uh, that, it's actually pretty interesting. Let me check really quick to make sure that I am right. But yeah, uh, Neuromancer comes out in 1984. Oh. So, right, so this this predates. So 1982 is when um, Blade Runner comes out, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. So, So weirdly enough, like, The Running Man is in this, like, this moment of the transformation of science fiction, both visually and, um... Uh, literarily mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and and yeah i think you're right it, like doesn't sustain it right mm-hmm. um you know the real difference between like uh you know the sprawl you know, gibson writing neuromancer and taking place in the sprawl and i think the running man starts out i think you're exactly right in something like the sprawl yeah even the kind of format of it's pretty similar right he, he kind of goes into the belly of the machine Against his will, certainly, but he's part of this process in the same way that that happens to Case and Neuromancer. They go and they talk to a fence in mm-hmm. the same way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he goes and talks to the Finn in Neuromancer, and here he goes and talks to like the local guy who can like get um, mo- uh, uh, food for everybody, right? And can make uh, fake and, IDs. And, yeah, buys fake IDs. So they've got even got that same kind of rhythm in the beginning. Uh, which is really funny, but then yeah, you're absolutely right. Like Neuromancer, they go to space, and in the Running Man, they go to Maine. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's a very funny way to parallel them. Uh, well, I think you know we we've covered uh, you know the the science fictiony stuff uh, pretty well, but I think uh, the other thing that is happening here um, that causes a lot of this kind of aesthetic. Uh, uh, I don't even want to call it m- mismatch, right? Because it, in some ways, for me, it's like the most interesting thing about the book. Uh, but this weird aesthetic shift is that uh, once it leaves the the uh, like corporate network center dystopia, whatever, and goes to New York City, uh, we run into the other thing that this book is, which is like pure exploitation, right? We go to New York mm-hmm. and it becomes an exploitation film of this period. Uh, and I think that is... It has some interesting consequences and also, I think, some very unfortunate consequences. Yeah, I mean, he meets a, a, a um, extremely poor black family mm-hmm. uh, who are having some of the worst possible things happen to them. Um, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the character. Um, uh, I am Bradley Throckmorton, right, is the name of the guy he meets that's like his buddy becomes his friend but i'm I'm blanking on his sister who has cancer yeah i don't remember um, either i'm sorry i read okay. this like 
in a in a clip like it re- this book reads fast like you just zip through it um so yeah, same yeah i i think i read it over the course of two days or something i read it a while back and she her, her name only shows up a few times basically he meets bradley throckmorton um through his younger brother and mm-hmm. and they have kind of a thing going on but what he finds out is that um uh they have a child sister who it has cancer mm-hmm. and she is wasting away painfully mm-hmm um, and she's never, you know, quote unquote on screen in the novel, at least as far as I can remember. Um, but, but they can hear her screams from the back room. I mean, she's die she's dying in the worst possible way. And we know that Stephen King has a, you know, uh, obviously a complicated relationship and a really emotional relationship to that kind of thing because of what happens with his mother, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so we, we've talked about that on the show a little bit before in the night shift episode, uh, I believe. Um, and so you can, you know, you never want to, this is not just biography, right? You never want to say there's a one-to-one relationship, but it, it feels important that there here is a plot line about abject suffering that Stephen King has a direct relationship to. And what he learns from, um, Bradley Throckmorton is that not only is like that just happening, you know, to this one family, but that is in fact kind of the the structure of the entire society that he lives within, which is that there is air pollution that is so, you know, widespread and terrible that everyone is breathing in basically carcinogens all the time. Mm-hmm. Everyone in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it's only the upper class who have these like rebreather devices, basically, um, who are able to deal with it appropriately and not be breathing these carcinogens. And it's e- even more than that, it's conspiratorial because um, he uh, 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 Bradley uses a um, he buys a, a hearing aid from a like pawn shop and then flips it into takes a, a cheap rebreather d- device that like the underclass can use and turns it into a quote unquote expensive one with, you know, the basic supplies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so his thing is that, that it's not expensive to have these devices. They are purposely killing the underclass, mm-hmm. you know, very, very much soil and green as people, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, spoilers, <laughs> 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 but uh, it's very much of that, that kind of thing. Um, and, but that takes place entirely through, a uh, characterization of Bradley and his family that is a white man from Maine who does not know any black people's impression of what black people are through exploitation cinema and black exploitation film. Yeah, it just it it feels like completely written from a film. Yeah, a hundred percent. Right, completely mediated by what you have seen uh, uh, in film. Yeah, um, Stephen King watched, you know, important black exploitation films of the 1970s and is just replicating every stereotype that, that that comes to mind. We see yet more of Stephen King kind of giving us, quote unquote, realism in the world by making people say the N word constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I don't know one way or the other, wherever people land on that, it's obviously very literarily complicated, but, um, I will say reading this, it's a, a real bad vibes. Well, and this um, actually, the, the other thing that needs context here, because the first time that word is uttered is actually earlier back in the network headquarters because the like producer or whoever, uh, that he has to deal with Killian is a black man. Did, definitely did not realize he was a black man because uh 
Oh, you did. Oh, because Richards uh, says to him something like, I thought you were the house. Like that's the first time that word is dropped, oh. and I think I do. I think I do remember. I didn't realize that was the same. I didn't realize that was Killy and the Network Head, but I do remember that. Or uh, there are like the two characters, right? But one of them is like a black man, and that is uh, mm-hmm. what he says to him. And so, like that's sort of the first thing you get, and then you get this, uh, and they feel very, very disconnected, kind of like formally, uh, but. I, I, I think, you know, in terms of like tracking how this novel is is choosing to uh, have, you know, invoke like people who are black, right? It, to note this about these characters, to have characters who are black. Uh, it, it's a weird kind of warping. Yeah, I mean, it is a it is a white author not thinking carefully about how he portrays people of other races. I mean, you know, just flat out, straight up, and it produces a um gross and bad thing um and and i I think you know the um the real uh you know not like the worst part quote-unquote about it but the bad part about it um is that it it does not read like there is any kind of um I mean, obviously, there's no care. It, it's it's the replication of exploitation cinema, right? And, right? and of white enjoyment of exploitation cinema. So that's the weird part to it. Here's a really weird part. Mm-hmm. In some ways, what this novel does is uh, sort of replicate the conditions under which a white man might feel like a fugitive slave, right? Well, I, I think that's very much on purpose because what uh, what he is told, what Richards is told mm-hmm. is that you need to stay with your kind, mm-hmm. right? Like, and by your kind, I think we are meant to read that as like poor people. Yes. Right? That's That's the thing. But no, I think that's exactly the right read. I think that... This is a fugitive novel, mm-hmm. and your kind, right, mm-hmm. here is constructed as other people who might also share qualities of fugitivity. Mm-hmm. And that is racialized as black. Yeah. In Stephen King's imagination. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think I mean, I, I think that is the right read. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is ripping off a whole, um, you know, literary tradition to, to repackage that as an aggrieved white man's story. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to, you know, a harrowing genre of real life violences that were inflicted on uh, you know, a whole uh, group of people. Right. 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 And a whole tradition of, of, you know, not just like, you know, fictionalized narratives, but like personal narratives, memoirs. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And I don't know if Stephen King uh, is I don't know if that's on purpose necessarily. Right. But it is a, uh, a weird confluence. It, no matter what, it's happening, mm-hmm. right? And it is either Stephen King purposefully doing that and kind of leaning into a literary tradition or just absorbing a literary tradition without any recognition that he's doing that and without any kind of thought about what that means to have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, and either way, it just it demonstrates, much like the racial representations, right, these kind of exploitation um, cinema moments, it, it demonstrates a lack of care mm-hmm. on the part of the author and the editor mm-hmm. um, of, of the thing, right? No matter how it got to this place, right? Um, and I don't even think this is a moment of us, you know, I think there's a way of listening to this entire conversation we just had and being like, uh, well, historically, this is Stephen King writing in the 1970s. And 
I would like you to think about what is happening in the 1970s for just one moment Mm -hmm. and realize that any kind of claim to like, well, uh, you know, uh, he was of a different time is absolute horseshit when you think about right we're immediately <laughs> after the civil rights act of mm-hmm. 19 of 1964 we are in the moment of i would say uh until the past 10 years of the most widespread american public thinking about systems of racialized oppression that has happened mm-hmm. you know in 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 the past 150 years you know i would say the, the 1960s through the early 1980s that's huge, concentrated, big moment. And then again, I would say in the last 10 years. And so even that, you know, that makes this feel like a reactionary or like a conservative response or like a, you know, a, a transformation of these kinds of public narratives um, into, um, uh, you know, the, the story of an aggrieved white man, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, uh, this adaptive logic. Uh, do, do you want to share? We, we talked a little bit about, uh, I think on Discord the other day, um, about how this conspiracy is basically Stephen King doing the thing that he critiqued the Black Panthers for. Do you, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, so that's the other thing, right, that, that makes this whole thing just a huge bummer to read. Uh, so in the Dan's Macabre episode, if you go back and listen to that, um, uh, or if you've already heard it, you'll remember that there is a scene where Stephen King sort of boasts about when he was in college and he went to a lecture by uh, some members of the Black Panther Party. And they basically explained the military industrial complex to him and well, and everyone there. Uh, but he kind of like raised his voice at the end and sort of accused them all of being paranoid. And the reason that this uh, story comes up in Dan's Macabre is that he is talking about like political paranoia and he's using it as an example of like how people are too paranoid uh about how things work because actually the world is just kind of chaos right there's not really uh conspiracies behind everything sometimes things just happen and you have to work with them uh and that's kind of you know that that is to to assign too much kind of uh intelligence or like machination to a series of events right and the way that they constellate is something that Stephen King wants to say we should not be doing uh, in Dan's Macabre. And yet here we see, you know, 10 years, you know, presumably this element was in the original draft. So 10 years earlier when he's writing this book, uh, he has Bradley like lay out for him the entire uh, like history of how these rebreathers uh, got put on the market and are being kept from people. And there's even like, uh, this is actually a really good moment of world building where I think Bradley uh, just offhandedly mentions like, well, if you read the reports from whatever, whatever, uh, then you would know this, but like they like stopped being released after the something, something act of some, it's just one of those things where, uh, the name, I don't even remember the name of the act, but it's something that's like, clearly it reads one way, but could clearly be read to be like, here is how we keep information from the public. Right. It's like public Mm -hmm. information integrity act or something. Um, so you get sort of the sense of how like the propaganda network of this uh, dystopia has worked to keep people from being aware of the fact that pollution is even an issue, right? Like the the way that air pollution is treated here, and this is the other thing that makes the novel feel in, in, incredibly quaint, uh, is that it is full on in that 70s moment of realizing like, oh, air pollution, Right. Pollution like post EPA sort of like environmentalism is is becoming increasingly kind of a force in in American life or at least in American consciousness. Um, Pollution is, you know, this whole thing. 
and this feels like it takes place in in a world where people forgot that pollution existed almost and uh that you know i think very nicely kind of provides a a a way to show how how that might actually happen but again that all said right uh bradley lays all this out this whole like you know uh, uh conspiracy among the the upper classes among the kind of techn- technocratic elites to kill the underclass and it becomes ben richards's like solemn duty to start communicating this back to the people and like re- you know raise a rebellion and so on and then what happens is that he tries to record his videos about this uh when he sends them back and then the network just edits the footage to make him sound like he's you know threatening to murder everyone because the other thing of course that is uh sort of important uh is that the running man whoever that is is always presented as, like, some sort of, like, murderer or fugitive, right? There's always a reason that the running man is running, and it's never the sympathetic one. The network always presents it in sort of the worst possible light. So uh, Ben Richards isn't doing this because he needs money for his sick daughter. They never mention the sick daughter. They just say that he's unemployed. And he chooses not to work because he's lazy, right? And he's got a history of violence. He got into some fights uh, at at various points, right? He's had run-ins with the law. And again, uh, as I'm saying this, you should think about uh, what we were just talking about with the the racial element here, right? And the ways that uh, we hear narratives like this from the media constantly. uh, And they are very often about, uh, uh, you know, black and brown people who have been uh, uh, killed by the police. Yeah, absolutely. There, it, there's this way that the uh, the critique of the media here is spot on, mm-hmm. right? It, it's kind of it, it is is an accurate critique of the media process, um, and much in the same way that I think that the film is very successful about that, um, but, but but fails to understand the structural element of why that happens um, or what kind of um, uh, uh, what kind of social relation that exists to maintain mm-hmm. right like that that happens in our real world in order to maintain a particular form of racial relation of class relation right it very much you know we can go back to base and superstructure right mm-hmm. like um there's a way that the cultural products of a society exist to maintain their uh infrastructural uh relationships right mm-hmm. um but Stephen King like cannot he short circuits when you try to think at that level, right? Like he just doesn't do that, and so he's like, "Oh yes, there must be a conspiracy of pollution <laughs> that all of this is is related to, right?" Mm-hmm. Um, he can never it it is it, uh, it's particularly Stephen King genre ish, right? To get so close to something that is real in the world. Mm-hmm. And then to maneuver it in such a way that it does not touch the real world in any kind of way, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's not a universal conspiracy in the real world, right? It's a racialized conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not even a conspiracy, right? It's just the way that the kind of infrastructure of civil society works, right? Um, that that That's occurring. And Stephen King's like, all right, well, uh, what if all uh, media was used to do mind control, but it was really just to keep the working white man down right yeah. it's like no steve you've messed this up horribly um uh yeah anyway so uh he has a couple more run-ins with kind of like people who are nice to him essentially i mean that's right. kind of the way that the novel goes is like he runs into bad stuff he runs into good stuff yeah. i really love the scene where he 
uh, is in the hotel and like burns the hotel down and everything. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. The, the, uh, the first kind of bit of the New York sequence is really good. Yeah. Yeah, so he's like doing that, and um, he knows that they're there. the The writing of the scene is wonderful, right? So mm-hmm. he's like looking around on the street, and he's like, "I think I've seen these people before." You know, mm-hmm. it's like this deep paranoia, um, and the way that King kind of constructs the scene is, uh, you know, slowly but surely piecing these pieces together. And he's like, "Oh shit, they've got me. They've got my number. I can't just like hide in this in this like." you know, room for, for weeks at a time and win the game, quote unquote. And so his response is to, um, he like fights his way out into an elevator and then gets to the elevator and goes to the bottom floor and just sets the building on fire, mm-hmm. and, which is wild. <laughs> yes. Right. And then of course this gets used against him in, in later broadcastings, right? Cause they're like, Oh, here are, here are the police officers that he killed in doing yeah. this. Right. Like that is specifically kind of the media narrative that gets spun. Um, but uh, otherwise, right, it is a good action scene. This that this little bit is kind of very good action King. We've talked before about uh, Stephen King and sometimes his struggles to write actual action. Uh, but then we get that. Uh, did you notice the the like proto Harold Lauder that we met? Mm, no, no. Tell me about that. Oh, wait, wait, wait. With his mom. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. so after uh, Bradley like smuggles uh, uh, Ben out of New York, um, he heads up to I think it's like Vermont or something is where he ends up, and uh, there's this guy that Bradley has. There's like an underground network, right, of people who are like uh, writing letters to each other. Again, <laughs> the quaintness of sort of like the future that you know did not see the internet. Um, there's this underground network of activists who are like writing each other letters and sending each other zines about air pollution um, and taking their own like weather readings and stuff and keeping their own uh, data. And one of them is this guy who is basically just Harold Lauder, right? He's kind of like this uh, overweight, uh, like boy genius character who has never managed to successfully emerge into kind of his adulthood and still lives with his mother who is uh, in some vague way, like mentally ill, right. Does not have kind of a, a, a firm relationship to like what is happening around her or like who is in her house. And she ends up like calling the cops on Ben once he shows up because, uh, she is terrified that her son is going to be arrested. Um, mm-hmm. but I just thought she's, it was, in- she's kind of a prefiguration too of, of, uh, the kid with asthma's mother from it. Yes. Yeah. Eddie Kasprak's mom. Um, yeah. So yeah, we got, we got two anticipations of further King characters there. And I thought that was interesting. And then, as I said, uh, you know, uh, Ben like runs to Maine, uh, and it's like rural vacation land, Maine. He like hijacks a car with a, a sort of like middle class or upper middle class woman uh, who is driving it. And he forces her to drive him to an airport. And he's like holding her hostage um, and lying about how he has like plastic, expl- plastic explosive under his shirt. And he gets the government slash network to provide him a jet on the runway and then he gets onto that jet which he well and then we get kind of his last big temptation scene do we want to talk about that uh well before we talk about that uh what is the name of the woman that he do you have it written down uh the woman he no i literally i remember no one's name in this book except now that you've reminded me bradley and also ben himself 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, people who listen to the show know that. I don't know anyone's name in any Stephen King novel. So, um, you know, uh, same points to me as normal. <laughs> but um, well, I was going to say, I'm normally on it like, like lightning. So, you know, that this how I felt about this book. Yeah. Well, yeah, you called uh, Eddie Kasperzak immediately with no pause. You were like, oh, yeah, that character uh, from it, which has charitably 35 named important characters in it, <laughs> and is a thousand pages long. Uh, so, yeah, your recall is normally pretty good. But, uh, yeah, I, a lot of them kind of run into it. But, but, yeah, as you're saying, she's kind of this, you know, white middle class woman. Um, and it very much is yet again this kind of moment. You know, the one way of reading the Stephen King's kind of writing of, you know, poor black characters in this novel is like, uh, in the same way he's done in some of the other Bachman books, and we'll see him do it in, in Stephen King mainline books too, it's a kind of like, look at the real world. Hey, man, the real world's messed up, and I'm going to make you see it. And the way that he writes almost all of Ben Richards's interactions with her is literally just putting that in Ben's mouth. Mm-hmm. Of Ben Richards being like, you think the world's good, but there's pollution everywhere. There's poverty everywhere, man. And it's really bizarre to read this, you know, almost back to back with Dance Macabre. Or, or, or no, it was back to back with Dance Macabre, right? Have we read anything in the middle? Well, we read Cujo last. I read Cujo in the middle. I don't know why I'm having this like uh, um, uh, time problem here. <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah, reading this back to back with Dance Macabre, where, um, y- you know, we get a Stephen King who basically, in a lot of different kind of social modes, is like, yeah, um, you know, history's trucking right, around, right along and it's pure chaos and you just got to deal with it. Um, as opposed to this Stephen King or, you know, this Richard Bachman who is like being a mouthpiece for what we might call radicalism. Um, but refusing to acknowledge where any of these radical movements come from, you know? Um, yeah. Re- refusing to acknowledge the kind of genealogy of who during the 1960s and 1970s is really pointing out the problems in America. Yeah. Um, and and it's not, it's not the Ben Richardsons. Uh, and that's not to undermine, you know, any contributions by, uh, you know, poor white or working class uh, radicals of the time. But... Stephen, in Stephen King's own retelling of the time period, he is not paying attention to, uh, you know, the weather underground, mm-hmm. right? Like, those are not the people that Stephen King associates with radical movements in the United States. It's figures like or, or groups like the Black Panthers, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, it's this weird kind of, like, constant revisionism into Ben Richards as, like, the kind of voice of the reality of the oppressed in America, and uh but anyway so but he is doing that as a character to this other character to her he's like holding a gun on her and just kind of monologuing to her about the ills of american society and about like why tv's bad and all this kind of stuff right he's like Um, uh, he's like hey there normie it's time to get jokerified right basically yes yes a hundred percent i mean this is again you know thinking of other kind of um relational texts that are here taxi drivers Mm -hmm. in the background here um, that this kind of like figure, the figure who just won't take it anymore, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and uh, as opposed to Travis Bickle, who like never quite fit, you know, uh, that, that character is um, a little bit of an oddball, mm-hmm. you know, even before he kind of decides to, to go on his one, one man killing spree across uh, New York. Um, the opposite happens with Vin Richards. He's a genius working class man. Mm-hmm. Like he's too smart. 
Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. We like we get tests at the beginning of the oh, novel God. that prove that to us, right? I forgot about that. Where he, where he, re- they, they like bring him to like the fancy apartment that he gets to stay in before the day before he has to start running, and they're like, "Can can we get you anything?" And he's like, "Some books." And they're like, "Books," <laughs> and he's like, "Yeah, people still read them." <laughs> And and they're like, I don't know if we have books. He's like, get me books. And they like get him books he doesn't like. Yeah. They're like not smart enough for him. Um, yeah, there's a lot of like f- literary flexing put in here. It's very much like school teacher Steve uh-huh. being like, you know what? This is one of the problems in America is that no one's reading. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not reading the secret government documents and they're not reading the good fiction. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, anyway, not to belabor the point, but uh, but yeah, so we get there and we get this kind of hostage situation where he is saying that um, he's got an explosive and he's going to detonate it and he's going to kill a bunch of people at an airport. So you got to give him, you know, uh, as well as this hostage. And he like calls the media. So like the media all show up. And this is yet again, it's it's really, it's been interesting to see Stephen King's like moments of absolute dystopia depicted. Uh, because, you know, reading this in 2021, I just don't think that very, I don't think it would be a problem even on live TV for, um, to, to like kill this man on live TV. Mm-hmm. I think they would just do it. I like, not that I think that would be right. I don't think that that's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying that like, uh, Ben Richards puts the, the, what do you call it? Uh, the hunters into a position where they can't do anything. Yeah. That is not real. Yeah, and this is this is a society, another little bit of world building that we get. Uh, this is a society that has, like, a, a ceremony for giving out what is called the Subpruder Award. Yes. For, like, the best filmed execution. Yes. Right, and so, again, there's another, you know, Steve thing uh, with uh, uh, the JFK assassination. But this is a world where, like, they are giving out awards for best death footage like that is a thing and so this is what i said in my what i alluded to in my summary uh when i said that the way that richards manages to turn this all around just feels so implausible based on like how this world has been written up until this point yeah as as if you know, live me. There's such a faith, and this really is. Like, this is Stephen King all the way up through the, you know, the early 2000s at least. You know, think about the guns essay that we read. Mm. You know, or, uh, when we did the episode on rage, and people can check that out if they want to. But you know, he believes. He says in that essay, you know, it would be better for the world if every liberal watched a little bit of Fox News and every um, a conservative watched a little bit of CNN. Right? Like Stephen King really believes that, like, ultimately the truth can win out if just everyone gives a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And so he puts these, the hunters in this like double bind of like, well, the the media is here and people will be swayed by, you know, the fact of you killing me if you do it, so you can't do it. You know, you you cannot execute me on live TV. And that that feels hopelessly naive in the year 2021, like in our real world, but also even by the rules of the novel he has set up so far. Mm-hmm. Um, but he gets on an airplane. <laughs> it works. He gets on a plane. Yeah. And I mean, then he like, uh, he has that woman there with him. He's holding her captive. Uh, the, 
the the head of the network calls in and he's like, you know what, Richards, you're really you're really good. You're the best damn running man we've ever had. So you know what? How would you like to become one of our hunters? And the, the so he has also uh, as part of his uh, hostaging you know situation has also lured the um uh the uh I I don't know the the lead hunter yeah. whatever his name is. He has lured or brought him onto the airplane, and this guy's like flabbergasted. He's like, oh my god, I can't believe it. Mm-hmm. I can't believe that I would be betrayed this way. Oh, I gotta kill you. And I should say, uh, if, you're, if you've seen the film The Running Man, and you're expecting these hunters to be like, uh, and, and this guy in particular, to be like, you know, uh, weird death gladiators with bizarre costumes, uh, that is the film's total invention. In, the, in this book... It is literally like it's it's like a plainclothes cop. That's what this guy looks yeah, like. Yeah. yeah, he's wearing like a suit. Um, in my mind, in the way that he is written, he's very much like the the prison warden in Cool Hand Luke. Because <laughs> that's his whole thing, right? It, it's like I have got you figured out. There's nothing you can do that will get one over on me, uh-huh. right? And he's even his kind of cadence has that kind of vibe to it. And the the novel's resolution is. Yeah, huh? I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, I can get one over on you. And and so much that, like, the state itself, this media apparatus that is both the state and the, the media, even it will betray you and you'll become flabbergasted by that. Um, and uh, somewhere along here, right at the end, he learns that his family is dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just like his little salt on the, like, uh, like St- this is really a moment of, like, going back to the origin point of Stephen King doesn't know how to end the novel. Because, like, here you're at an impasse, right? Like, he's stolen a plane. He's got, a, he's got a jet. He's won. He's winning, right? Like, it could happen. He could make it away. He could make it, like, to Canada or whatever. Um, he could win the running man. Mm-hmm. No one has ever done it before. And so you have to resolve that in some way. And uh, so, yeah, he resolves it by uh, having his family murdered. Mm-hmm. It's murdered, not die, but murdered. Right. Like it's it's unclear whether or not this is just like a thing that maybe the network staged and uh, this is how they're covering it. But they are covering they're reporting it as a as a murderer. Right. Because they they lived in Co-op City and they say, oh, yeah, like some people broke into the apartment and just, you know, killed them both. What? No, no, Michael. I mean, that does happen, but it's so much worse. It's like your infant child and your wife were both stabbed to death brutally. Well, I mean, I was I was being diplomatic about that part. <laughs> I know, but I just I, I really want to make it clear that like this is not Stephen King being like, oh, they were murdered. It's it's Stephen King being what what we have said a little bit, or you know, at, at least I I've said in this way so far is that there is a cruelty to Stephen King that will show up really heavily in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, and this novel has two of those moments of cruelty, of kind of aesthetic abhorrence to them. Uh, one of them is this very graphic image uh, of um, uh, Ben Richards having a dream. And oh, there might God. be a little bit of shining in here, yeah. Michael. I, I don't know. Yeah. You know, there's a little bit of uh, unclear, but he's having this kind of you know precog dream of um, uh, uh, Brantley. Is this Bradley? Name? I don't know why I can't. Bradley, <laughs> Brantley, uh, uh, of Bradley being tortured and having needles jammed into his eyes. Yeah. And it's extremely graphic and it's extremely detailed. 
whew, hard, hard to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then this kind of like you know your, your infant child was stabbed to death multiple times or not stabbed to death multiple times stabbed multiple times and then died. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's just this kind of like you know uh, what we talked about in the uh, dance macabre you know uh, episode. Steve, Steve says it right when you can't think of anything else, go for the gross out. Yeah. And and he goes for the gross out here, and we're gonna see him. We're at the. You know, I said this with Cujo too, but we're at kind of tipping point where I think we're going to see more of the gross out than even some of the other Stephen King stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but but that happens, and then he makes a, a choice here at the end. What do you think about this kind of final choice, Michael? I mean, so what he does uh, after he discovers this is that he he sets up all like so he's found out that his family has died, and basically he engineers everything into this elaborate ruse where they are letting him fly unimpeded with this crew and with the head hunter or stalker or whatever they're called, and plus this woman who's his hostage. And then he uh, sort of gives Killian the impression that he's agreed to the deal, that he'll take the the, the position. Uh, and then he just, like, kills all the other guys, uh, makes the woman jump with a parachute, and then flies the plane into the network tower where he knows Killian has his office back in like middle America in, in Michigan or whatever. And it is an ending in the sense that everything in this story has stopped happening. Yep. It has reached a point beyond which it could not continue. (laughs) Yes. Um, and What's so great is that, like, I mean, there's a real good Chekhov's gun in in the book because at the beginning when he's in the offices, he's like, what could happen if I went to the top floors of this building and killed everybody there? Uh-huh. Like, would it change the world? Uh-huh. And then the novel ends with him obviously doing that, but in a different kind of way. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, it doesn't make, like, the world better for anybody, probably. No. You know, it's just... it it. It is pure nihilism mm-hmm. in an uncut form because there's nowhere else to go, quite literally. Right. The man has nothing left, and so he just, like, takes a bunch of people out. Yep. Which is just in the road work, right? Uh-huh. It's the same thing. Well, and he, he only takes out himself in road work is the difference. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, I don't... Um... Yeah, I don't know what to do with it. You know, I, I really, like I said, I really liked this novel as a, as a child. And I think that now as, a, as an adult, this is not a good novel. No. It, is, it is not a good novel in the sense of, uh, you know, I think there are glimmers of kind of aesthetic brilliance here. You know, I think there are some really cool scenes. Um, but I don't think that that like makes the book good. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I, I would not read it again. Um, I think politically it it is one of the grosser Stephen King books that we've read mm-hmm. uh, for sure. I'm glad to take a little bit of a break from Bachman books for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, what's your kind of final evaluation of it? It seems like even, it seems like based on the, the, the tenor we've had here, you're even further down on it than I am. 
I just find it uh, deeply unpleasant. And when it's not being unpleasant, it's usually being boring. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I blazed through it, but but not in the kind of, you know, I think I said last time that, you know, Cujo really got me. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I got to get to the end of this. Like, dang, it's really happening. The, you know, the back third of that novel is lightning. So good. Uh don't I didn't feel that way for for this book. This book just read really quickly, mm-hmm. so I just kind of like blazed through it. Yeah, stick with the film, folks. Stick with film. Film. Uh, I you know, like I said, we're gonna have a great conversation because the uh, film is amazing. Uh-huh. <laughs> the film. The film. I could probably talk about. Maybe we will. Who knows? I can talk about it for two hours. <laughs> uh, no question. So we'll see how that goes, and we have a very special guest uh, coming for that episode. You'll have to click over to the feed to find out who. Uh, we also probably said it on Twitter. Um, but, um, we got some segments here, Michael. Yeah. Uh, let's start with my favorite Kingism, uh, which is the segment where we go through the book and we each pick out a brief sentence or some bit of prose that to us is evocative or distinctive of Stephen King, uh, as, as a stylist for uh, my money. So this comes, uh, late in the novel. Uh, at about the time that Richards has, he's like just reached Maine and he's kind of on the ground. I don't think he's like taken that woman hostage yet. So Ben, uh, you know, pops up by the side of the road. He hears this dog barking. He thinks, oh gosh, they've got police dogs. And no, it's just a regular dog. And there's like a kid who owns it. And, uh, you know, Richards is very surprised by this and he gets his first look at the boy. And this is how this uh, is described. The boy was holding Rolf, that's the name of the dog, right? He was like, Rolf, come back, Rolf. The boy was holding Rolf by the collar and staring at Richards with frank interest. He was a good-looking boy, well-made, perhaps eleven, and there was none of the pale and patched inner-city look on his face. There was something suspicious and alien in his features, yet familiar also. After a moment, Richards placed it. It was innocence. Wow. And I chose this because this is like, I read this and my just sort of immediate thought was like, Steve, you son of a bitch. <laughs> like, you can't help it. Like, there's something strange about this boy, something alien to him, some quality. What is this? <gasps> I know it's innocence. Yeah, I mean, you know, like the only unvarnished good, right, in, in this uh, in this world are children. <laughs> you know, in, in this fictional world, it's it's this kid, it's the, the child who's dying of cancer, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, Ben Richards' own daughter who, who who dies, right? It's it's this kind of, like, the infinite possibility of the future. And, you know, if, if we were to, like, be systemic and programmatic, right, um, about Stephen King so far, the whole novel is just, like, core King. Evil undoes itself, right? Like, evil produces a game show that will literally, you know, crash a plane into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this child still has the capability to go on and like live his life and be innocent and not participate in that kind of violence of the system. Um, and, but, but telling, right. I mean, you know, the, the imaginary here is palpable. Um, the, uh, the literal black children, right. Like the, you know, both, um, Bradley's younger brother and, you know, his sister who's dying of cancer, they are, have no future, mm-hmm. right? Like, none at all. And they're not innocent in any kind of way, um, you know, within the kind of clockwork of the novel. 
But this, like, white kid with a dog in rural areas, that's where the possible future in innocence lies, right? You know, it's almost like Frederick Jameson-style cognitive mapping, right? Like, we have a geography of this world that has a... Um, a, a, a racial, a, a racial and like class hierarchy of goodness that is written into its structure, um, and it's just like pure Steve Kitsch, right? Yeah, um, I mean, there's a there's a bit where Richards later, a couple paragraphs after this, I think when he's told the kid goodbye, he thinks to himself like. You know, God damn it! Why couldn't my daughter have had a life like that? As he watches the boy like walk off down the rural main road with his dog by his side, like pure rural fantasy, mm-hmm. right? Like rural fantasy of the save the savior of the world mm-hmm. um, is there, right? And just like um, the it's yeah. it's it's the mellow we we gave a couple of examples of this that I think that really worked in the dead zone episode of when King's kind of narrative voice tips into the, into the melodramatic and it can really work. And here it just doesn't, it was my favorite Kingism yeah. because it was just such an astonishingly bad example of that, uh, kind of not landing or rather a good example of it not working. Right. Yeah. He, uh, it, it's really interesting to see that kind of get turned into, you know, like the capital W, the white, mm-hmm. you know, later on in, in Stephen King's work. I, I mean, actually pretty soon for us uh, yeah. in the next 10 novels or so that's going to be happening. And, and that, that kind of melodrama gets turned into metaphysics, mm-hmm. you know, of like, you know, the structure of the universe, but. Uh, anyway, we'll get there when we get there. Mine is uh, a, a different king in a different mode. It's actually the the section that I alluded to earlier about the pipe. Um, and so he burns down this building, and he knows that there's a drain pipe in the basement. And so he gets in the drain pipe. It's like a drain culvert in order to go to the sewer. Mm-hmm. But what I love so much about it, I'm not going to read it because it actually goes for several pages. Um, but... Uh, he the building he he has set the basement on fire and he gets in this pipe to go to the sewer and what happens is that go it kind of goes straight down vertically and then it makes an elbow horizontally mm-hmm. and he believes Ben Richards believes he can just get down in this pipe and and do it and he gets stuck in the pipe and it's this like blow by blow I mean it's it's Stephen King really getting granular and granular granular in a really cool actiony way of like. Ben Richards is trying to move his arm so that he can turn a little bit in the pipe and like get in a sitting position and like scoot through the thing. And it's just this kind of moment by moment horror. I mean, it's horror writing being figured into like an action movie setup. Um, And what's interesting to me is it kind of predates, um, you know, movies where that becomes the big, big thing. You know, I'm thinking here like Die Hard where part of the thrill of watching Die Hard is like watching the destruction of John McClane's body as he like knows Mm -hmm. how to do something, right? Going through Nakatomi Plaza and it's actually having to watch his body do it where you're like, oh, he doesn't have shoes and he's got to walk over that glass. Or Mm -hmm. like, oh, he's got to get through these ducts. Oh, you know, this is kind of like proto body horror almost to it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what's happening in the section. It's, It's this like, horror uh, uh, sensibility, but applied to the the totally normal, I mean, I guess it's not normal to cram yourself into a drain pipe, but <laughs> relatively pedestrian, you know. Unless uh, you're, you're not Mario. captured by aliens. If you're Mario, what if that happened every time, right? Like Mario goes and he jumps in the pipe <laughs> and he's going down the pipe and then it is a like button by button, you gotta <laughs> ro- like, rotate the left thumbstick to make Mario rotate into the sitting position. <laughs> <laughs> he's gotta like slowly guide it's, 
<laughs> like Quop, but for guiding Mario through a pipe. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, that would be good. Uh, someone can make that. Yeah. You can make the Just King Thinks a fan game of Quop, but going through the pipe. <laughs> Um, but that's the one that I, and we'll see that a lot more. I think actually this doesn't feel like Stephen King in 1972. This feels like Stephen King in 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I will see more of this show up in, you know, the, the dark tower novels. I think some of their best action sequences kind of happen in that really granular way too. Um, as well as like it, it has a couple of those really cool moments too mm-hmm. of like, creeping through a basement mm-hmm. and like having to, to do things. But uh, yeah, that, that's my favorite Kingism for this episode. Awesome. Uh, you know, speaking of crawling through pipes and things uh, and good descriptions thereof, uh, if we're going to talk about what in the Kingiverse, which is the segment where we kind of point out connections to other King works, uh, we've already evoked a couple of them, but they've been kind of more structural or thematic. Um, one big one, uh, that I think is is kind of interesting. As far as I can remember, this appears to be the first textual mention of Derry. Yeah, so Derry Maine becomes a hugely important, you know, in the same way that Castle Rock so far in the books that we've read has been an important kind of shared location. Um, Derry becomes the one that dominates, I would say, I would say more than Castle Rock even, dominates the next 20 years of Stephen King production Mm -hmm. yeah Um, so much that like he returns to it for like 40 pages in um the jfk assassination novel for like no reason (laughs) it's just like a fun thing to do Um, i mean he does the same thing in the tommy knockers right there's like a little subsection of that book where the characters go to dairy for basically no reason other than to go to dairy Yeah, yeah, I totally forgot about that. Um, it's got a fun uh, Pennywise uh, cameo in it, too. Yes, yes, that's when that happens. Uh, oh, it's so cool. Uh, uh, yeah. But anyway, yeah, that dairy, like, it's it's mentioned, like, once when Richards is running around Maine. He tells, I think, the woman that he's taken hostage. He's like, if you keep going this way, you'll go to dairy or something. And it's a very uh, subtle beginning for something that's going to become so prominent later on. Yeah, I wonder if that was in the original draft or if he put that in in the 80s yeah you know when he's editing this republication i'd I'd be very curious to know where it shows up stephen king's papers aren't anywhere right uh no i believe they are i i he there's various uh bits of stephen king juvenilia and ephemerae that uh people have talked about being in the papers in i think it's university of maine which is his alma mater gotcha hmm i'd be very uh i'd be very interested to um to know if there are early drafts of this book there. Mm-hmm. I'd be very curious about what changed. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's the only connection I can think of. Yeah. Because, just because, you know, these are the Bachman books and that's how it works. Mm-hmm. But strangely enough, when we're talking about versions of manuscripts, uh, the other thing that we do here is Uncle Stevie's mixtape, where we go through and we listen to the songs that have appeared in the novel. And it just so happens uh, that... As far as I can tell, there's only one song mentioned in this book, uh, and there are two versions of it. And the song that is mentioned could, I don't know which version of the song is being referenced because uh, either one could happen. So the song is Betty Davis Eyes, which is uh, its most famous recording is 1981 by Kim Carnes. Uh, Are you familiar with this song, Cameron? No, not at all. Not at all. Okay. 
Um, it's uh, a pretty, I think, well-regarded song from that time period. It's not something... It, I don't know if Carnes did much afterward. I haven't heard a lot about her, but I don't think this has quite got the reputation of like one hit wonder in the sense that it was overexposed. That's not the sense that I get. People who remember it, people mm-hmm. I know, I'm always like, oh, do you know the song Betty Davis Eyes? And they're like, oh, yeah. Um, so 1981, it's on the top of the charts, and this book comes out in 1982. And it would make sense if this song were referenced uh in this book because the guy who makes fake IDs like sings it to himself while he's making fake IDs and how uh, Richards responds to it. it it's like uh, a sort of indirect discourse thing where Richards listened while uh, what's his face like worked on the fake IDs and sang himself some silly song about Betty Davis's eyes. So 1981, mm. uh, maybe likely the most uh, recent a, a version of that, the one that probably Stephen King is referencing. Cameron, I'm going to ha- drop the link to this uh, to you so you can listen to it and you might you might recognize it because I want you to cool. listen to it and have heard it and then go back and experience with me what the original recording sounds like because it's incredible. Okay. So here's well, the here's... whole time you've been talking, I've been listening to Betty Davis eyes. So I've, I've got it. Okay. I know what's up. Sh- give me this 1974 uncut original song. I, I am familiar with this. I, I didn't know the words. Okay. Um, yeah. So the uh, this original 1974 uh, uh, by Jackie DeShannon, who is one of the original co-writers. Okay. I'm going to listen to that. You, you want my like raw uncut? Yes. You know, this is okay. Yes. It's three minutes long. <laughs> What? <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, I wish to God that DMCA did not what? exist because I want to put what? this in for people. <laughs> Listeners, you must understand. If you have never heard this song, uh, you must go to YouTube and you must listen to Kim Carnes' Betty Davis Eyes. You must hear this one first. You must. I'm, and then you must I'm look up uh, Betty mind. Davis Eyes, ni- Jackie DeShannon, 1974, and listen to that and just like consider the worlds, the vast, vast worlds that separate these two songs that otherwise have the exact same lyrical content. I'm crying. I'm literally crying. That's the funniest shit I've ever heard. I, I don't, you know, I don't remember exactly your phrasing, but it's, uh, you've described a previous song on the show as a song that a cartoon clown might dance to. <laughs> and this is also... <laughs> song that a cartoon clown might dance to <laughs> holy shit <laughs> oh i'm i'm actually crying that's so funny god that's that sucks that song is bad <laughs> the original is just so like the instrumentation is so weird and strange compared to like uh what what feels like almost iconic in the later version which is kind of this uh early new wave synthy kind of thing um the the original is like a honky tonk thing with a bunch of horns 
It does. It has a big band opening. It's so strange. But yes, my reaction, uh, uh, completely unvarnished, where you heard me burst out laughing is when the... (laughs) (laughs) What the Oh, I am so glad that that worked out. (laughs) I was hoping that bit would play. Oh, Oh, that's... But, well, so you know, we, we've we've uh, spoken before with a friend of the show, Kirk Hamilton, about how he gets gets away with playing the music he does on his his show, and uh, you know, question mark dot dot dot. No one knows, but it does feel like uh, since we are commenting on it, you probably can put the first fifteen seconds of the of the song in this episode. Okay, um, you know, since we're commenting on it, and uh, if if we get a takedown notice, we'll just edit it out and repost the episode. <laughs> But I don't think we will. Okay. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> oh, well, that, oh. I will tell you that. I got more enjoyment out of that uh, one minute. No, 38 seconds I listened to of that song than I did reading the entirety of The Running Man. <laughs> uh, next next episode, we're doing The Gunslinger. Mm. Uh, very famously, the first novel uh, in uh, the Dark Tower series. Although, you know, we'll, we'll talk about its production history and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's also going to be our anniversary episode, even though it's a little bit wiggly. We, we've uh, <laughs> we've not quite missed it, but due to the way our posting schedule changed in the middle of uh, the year, we've got a little bit of, of, of difference. But we are saying that uh, the August episode is the anniversary episode every year for the, the oncoming years. Uh, which means we got some cool stuff to announce. We'll, we'll announce that when the thing is happening, maybe some, uh, some interesting stuff for you to check out. Uh, but also, uh, I think it'd be fun to have a little Q and a, uh, so if you have questions for us about after one year of reading Stephen King novels, uh, you can send that to us on the discord. You can send that to us on Twitter. Uh, you can, I guess, theoretically, no, that's probably it. You can send us those questions on Twitter or you can send us those on discord. Uh, feel free to message me on discord. Um, and uh, if you don't know how to do either of those things, uh, I don't know, we can make an email or something like that. We'll, we'll talk about it afterward. Maybe you can edit in the email here, Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but let's do that. Send us your questions. Uh, ask us whatever you want to know about Stephen King uh, stuff and our experience doing the show. And we will talk about The Gunslinger next time as well as answer some cool questions. Uh, I think probably uh, Waypoint has the the question bucket um, uh uh, you know gotten so we'll call ours uh i don't know what the question sewer yeah sure uh, the question the question, sure. the, the question yeah the question sewer <laughs> i was thinking the question boiler or or perhaps the question hedge maze might be good <laughs> but uh yeah probably the question sewer is, is the best one so hey folks michael here in the edit to let you know that since this was recorded cameron and i decided the q a will actually be a special standalone mid-month episode released after the main app uh the deadline for getting your questions in is friday july 23rd so if you have any questions for us about just king things or our stephen king experiences you can still get those to us via twitter or discord but we've also set up a dedicated email address so holler your questions into the question sewer at gmail.com and see if anything shouts back. Also, uh, something else not decided at the time that this was recorded, next month's Patreon-only bonus episode uh, will be discussing 1995's The Mangler, directed by Toby Hooper from Steve's classic short story in Night Shift. So if you want to hear that, bop on over to patreon.com slash range touch and kick us a few dollars. And if you're already doing that, uh, thanks so much. And I hope you enjoy that bonus episode when it comes down the pipe. Send us your, your questions about the show for the question sewer, and we'll, de- we'll delve down in there. 
and uh, follow our little paper boat right into it, and uh, we'll see what kind of questions you got. <laughs> well, some just final notes. Thank you so much, folks, for being here with us on Just King Things. Um, if you like this show, if you like what you just heard and you want to help us out, you can go to patreon.com slash rangetouch where you can kick us any amount of money that you de- you decide uh, you want to give us. Um, any little bit helps. But if you give us $5, you will get access to our bonus episodes, which is the Patreon-only podcast feed where Cameron and I, every month in addition to this show, talk about a movie, uh, a Stephen King film adaptation, uh, or film original of some kind that, uh, if we can swing it, is related to what we've read, and if we can't, then is, you know, some other variety thing. And this month, we are talking about the actual Running Man film with Arnold Schwarzenegger. We have a special guest, uh, who we still have not named here. Do we still not want not to not want to name? We still don't name. Okay, we still don't, don't name. name. Okay, go over and check it's out the secret. feed to find out who our special guest is. I think it'll be a real treat. Um, and also, if you uh, give us any amount of money, you will contribute to our overall goal where we are trying to hit $4,500 a month. When that starts, we will begin a podcast where Cameron and I read through and talk about the webcomic Homestuck. Very similar to what we are doing right now with Stephen King. Uh, and I think that'll be a a lot of fun. Um, and there's also a kind of other special project that I am involved with, uh, working on that will be related to that podcast, uh, that will require me to do a lot of additional research. So if you've ever wanted to watch someone really go in on the Homestuck research, uh, that's, that's what you want to listen to is this theoretical podcast that we are absolutely going to make once we hit that goal. Um, if you want to follow us, you can go to twitter.com slash ranged touch, uh, and that's where we'll post all of our updates. And it's where we'll link to, uh, our YouTube links when we have like videos come up, such as mages and murder dads, which as we are speaking is still playing through disco Elysium and also too much future where Cameron and I play through the fallout games. We are just starting our playthrough of new Vegas. Lots of fun here at range touch. And so, uh, until next time, Cameron, uh, you want to remind the folks at home why it is that we go through so much effort for sometimes, uh, very little reward. We do it for the world. Okay. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Uh, but also we, uh, do it for Steve. What if uh, the Running Man, but uh, Wario <laughs> is is the bad guy and Mario is the good guy? Uh, like so, Wario is hunting Mario. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no, Wario is um, he's like running the show. Okay. And Waluigi is chasing. <laughs> he's Get- the hunters or whatever they're called get nintendo on the line i think we've got you know you thought when they you thought the rabbits crossover was wild uh wait till we oh my god that's the wario mario (laughs) wario wario world comes back right but the pitch is it is a gritty dystopian like parallel timeline where wario has taken over the mushroom kingdom it's all wario world yeah and um Oh, that's even more terrifying, honestly, because you could really get, like, uh, Battle Royale. This is how we get the Battle Royale genre uh-huh. into... It only took them 30 years to get the tactical RPG genre <laughs> into the the Mario canon. Yeah. Um, so we're going to get Battle Royale in there pretty quick. Oh, goodness gracious. 
<laughs> you can just put this into the end of the episode as a treat just yeah. for the people uh, for uh, my money i chose a little paragraph that comes late in the novel uh this is on page 629 of, of my copy because i have an old uh, copy of the bachman books so this is like the last one that comes there <coughs> are you okay hold on Oh, God. <clears throat> I'm back. Are, are you okay? I literally swallowed a gnat. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was about to say that happened with such, uh, like, suddenness that it sounded like a bug flew in your mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, comically so. Yeah.